Good morning, Mercy House. My name is Freke. I'm over at the Amherst College. Our reading this morning will be from Psalms 123. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are here this morning in your presence. We worship you, creator of the world, and our Father. All that exists in the world and all that we can imagine come from you. Our plans, our desires, our hopes, our fears, our disappointments, frustrations, even our failures aren't a surprise to you. We thank you because even when we are drowning in our feelings, even when others look down on us or we seem insufficient in ourselves, we can look up to you and find grace. And your grace is sufficient for us. This morning I pray for Tommy as he preaches that you lead him in the word, that you direct his speech, that your word arrive in full power, not through his preparation or his illustrations, but through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that the word may transform lives and that we may practice what we have learned. I pray for the kids downstairs, the Mercy House kids. I pray for those who are teaching them that even though they can't hear the message this morning, that in their own way they will receive something from you. Mm. I also pray for those who feel overwhelmed at this time. I'm thinking of the students who might be having assessments coming up and others who might be overwhelmed by work. I pray that through the Holy Spirit we might have supernatural relief and that we might have peace as we surrender our burdens to you. Amen. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thanks, brother. All right. Good morning. Oh, coming in hot. At this point, there's a slide to announce that there should be a slide to announce that the children are going downstairs with Zinue. So zero to two, uh, grade two, grades two and under are going to go downstairs. Grade three and above are going to go with JD across the street. We just want to make that clear because people were going to the wrong places last week, and so here we go. All right, good morning, Mercy House. Uh, glad that you are with us this morning. 
Uh, we're going to be continuing on our sermon series, Long Road Home. If you are just joining us this morning, we're glad that you're with us. I'm going to give you kind of the condensed version of what's been happening. So uh, we're going through the Songs of Ascents, which are a collection of these 15 psalms, uh, starting in Psalm 120, going to 134, which the nation of Israel uh, specifically curated as, as a playlist of songs to sing during their many pilgrimages back to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem for them is, is truly home. It's truly home to the people of Israel. It, it's home culturally for them. It's where they felt the most normal uh, in what they wore, in what they thought, the things that they said, even the things that they ate. And along with this, Jerusalem was home emotionally for them. So it, it's where they felt truly at rest, uh, where they were able to feel safe and secure. And not just from opposing threats from the outside, which were present, no doubt. And the walls of Jerusalem would have been able to protect them and make them feel safe physically from those threats. But uh, they were at home in a, in a sense that Jerusalem was a place where they could just kick up their feet, where they could be at ease without the challenges of living in, in, in a hostile culture uh, or dangers on the road of coming back home. So that's what Jerusalem meant for Israel. I think what's even more important for Israel is that Jerusalem was home spiritually for them. Uh, that's really the theme of what we've been talking about. It was where the temple was. It's where God resided and where he dwelled. It, it was the unique and exclusive place on earth where Israel was able to gather together and to worship God. And even more so, uh, something that was really unique and special to them was the fact that they had the ability to do this amongst their brothers and sisters as well. So anytime they went home, it, it was a huge reunion. And so last week we looked at how, how King David was glad, like his heart was full of joy and excitement at just the mention of coming back to the house of the Lord so that he could experience the, the collective worship of God amongst his brothers and his sisters. And so last week, the major takeaway is that there no longer is a temple in the conventional sense, that God has not made his dwelling place in a unique and a special building uh, or, or, or even on earth as, as we see him coming in the flesh and, and living among us as Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. But the reality is that we collectively, individually, together are the dwelling place of God. And so you see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 22. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so now this puts incredible value and purpose in our existence here as a body of believers. At Mercy House, this is not a, a valuable space because we have like a really cool building, right? Or like we're just right on the edge of campus. We're not valuable as an institution because we, we can steward our resources well to help other people. Our, our value is not in our ability to throw fun events or because we have like a great children's ministry downstairs or, or a great youth program. Mercy House is not awesome because we have like a couple of cool TVs and some funky set pieces up here. Mercy House is valuable, and, and you should have joy and be excited to come to Mercy House on a weekly basis because you get to be a part of what God is doing. You, you are being joined together with other members of the household of God, which is being built together as a dwelling place for God. Like that's why you should be excited to come on a Sunday morning. This is what it means for us to be a church. If you, if you wonder, like, why do people collectively gather? Why is it important for us to exist as a church? Can't we be doing this like, on our own at home? Well, this is why. 
the reality of us being able to come together as the house of the Lord. We're the dwelling place of God. And in the context of Israel, uh, this is what they risked their life and limb, multiple journeys every single year to be able to experience in Jerusalem. Like, we're doing it right here and right now. It's kind of a, a slice of heaven. And for Jerusalem, it really was. And for us today here at 365 North Pleasant Street, this is what we get to experience each and every Sunday when we gather together a slice of heaven. And so that's why I'm excited to come back week after week to the house of the Lord. That's, that's why your leaders and your staff are excited to come early, why we turn on the lights early, why we set up these chairs, why we set up the tables and make the space ready for everybody to come each Sunday because more than a building or an organization, Mercy House is the house of the Lord. And we get to experience the sweetness of worship alongside our brothers and sisters each and every Sunday. We're living the dream, Mercy House, and it's awesome. Now, this is not to say that everything is perfect, right? This is one of the things that we talked about last week, that there isn't areas where we as a church need to grow and and need to mature, that there aren't places where the leaders need to lead better, areas that Christians and just the followers of Christ that are in this building need to be further sanctified as they continue in their journey of following Jesus. But no matter what challenges we face as a church, the central joy and gladness that we have together is through uniting as the body together. It's found in the permanent peace, the shalom, the wholeness, and the completeness that we have in Christ. And while nothing threatens that peace as if anything could take away that peace from us, that that peace and and the shalom that we have is often tested. It's tested. And so this morning in Psalm 123, we're going to be looking at one of those tests for our shalom. We're going to be talking about what that test looks like and and how we're able to, to navigate the test in a holy, godly way. So I'm going to jump in, I'm going to reread these four verses, and we're going to go from there, starting in verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to you, the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. One thing I want to remind you um, of is how we ought to be approaching the Psalms. Uh, We're four weeks into this sermon series, and and at this point, um, it it, it kind of bears repeating, though, that these are songs that we're looking at. And it doesn't mean that they're any less significant than other parts of Scripture, or that they're any less valuable or less authoritative, but it is important to remember uh, that these are songs because it's a specific kind of art form. The, The purpose of songs is not to primarily institute doctrine or to bolster informational uh, or like theological knowledge. It doesn't mean that it isn't there, but the purpose of the psalms, just like any other song that we listen to, is really to communicate things that are often difficult to communicate, which is our feelings and, and emotions. Eugene Peterson, he's a theologian, he's the author of the Message Bible translation, he puts it this way, he says, the psalms help express our hearts to God. Most scripture speaks to us, the psalms speak for us. And so as you read the psalms and as we study them together, know that there's a level of heart and emotional engagement that's really important for us in order to be able to tap into these songs and get the most out of them. 
And so as an aside, the, the Psalms are a great place to go when you're feeling an overwhelming amount of emotions. Whether you're going through heartbreak or you're experiencing grief, maybe you're frustrated or just angry, maybe you're experiencing loneliness or isolation, or maybe you're actually full of joy and gladness. There are no emotions that are missed in the 150 Psalms. And the Psalms are so fruitful, not because they, they identify with these emotions that we collectively have, but because they give us incredible direction with our emotions, how to navigate grief and sadness, how to handle loneliness and isolation, how to respond to heartbreak or even rightly celebrate in our joy and our gladness. And this is what we see in Psalm 123. As we read the Psalm, we see a painful emotion and, and, and a set of painful experiences, and when the healthy way to deal with them uh, is just laid out for us, we want to be able to look into that, read it, and follow it. Now, when you read the psalm, though, the ordering is peculiar because the psalm leads with the healthy response, and then it ends with the problem. And so I think it might be helpful for us this morning to actually work backwards. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, outline the painful heart experience that's being felt, and then we're going to look at what a healthy response to that is. So we're going to jump down. If you have your Bibles, we're going to uh, look at verse 3 and verse 4. It says, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So throughout Israel's history, one of the things that they experienced often was scorn and contempt. Uh, we talked about this as, as we walked through Psalm 121, that for Israel, living in places that didn't share the same cultural norms, uh, among people who didn't share the same beliefs about God, often led them to be shunned or shamed or, or, or for just believing what they believed. And this is what contempt is. Contempt is when someone looks down on you and considers you a lower status or lesser value. When you're treated with contempt, you're disrespected with words and actions with the goal of just discouraging you or breaking your spirit. People can be cold towards you or really dismissive, but you're made to feel lesser, to feel different or excluded. Honestly, when people treat us with contempt, we feel stupid. We feel worthless. This could be for a lot of reasons. Uh, sometimes it's as trivial as the kind of shoes that you're wearing. And I was talking with my sister Naomi yesterday, and she was sharing that her son Sammy, who's, who, who's in second grade, is being bullied because he doesn't have cool shoes, which is ridiculous because he wears classic Reeboks. Like, what's wrong with classic Reeboks? Nothing. She was sharing, though, about how some boys at school are saying that he needs new shoes in order to hang out with them, that, that they're too dirty because he's like a second grader boy who runs around, right? That he needs to wear certain kind of shoes, the shoes that they're wearing in order to hang out with them. And so they treat him with contempt. And then Sammy feels like he's done something wrong, that, that he's not cool like these kids, or that he's just lesser. See, the, the worst part about contempt is it's not when someone tells you you're worthless or you're stupid. It's, it's when you yourself believe that accusation, and you join in on that lie, and then you treat yourself with contempt. See, it, it's complicated because as Naomi is sharing this with me, I'm like, who does that bully think that he is? Like, what, what is he thinking putting people down like that? How, how could he be so stupid and petty over, over just shoes? How could he treat my nephew like that? Making fun of Sammy's shoes? Like, the kid's probably wearing Skechers or maybe Heelys or something like that. You see what, what's happening there, though? Like, I'm tempted to treat him with the same contempt that he's treating my nephew Sammy with. Like, God help us. And there's nothing wrong with Skechers. If you're wearing Skechers, that's fine. That's just a joke. But if you are wearing heelys, if you're wearing the shoes with a wheel in the heel, we'll talk after the service, right? 
See, contempt, though, can come out in different ways. We can make people feel alienated. We can try to make them feel stupid. We can just try to degrade them and try to hurt their feelings. Or we can just treat them with coldness, with, with mild disgust, with just disapproval. But however it plays out, it always comes from a place of pride and superiority. And you see this in verse 4. We treat others with contempt when we think that we are better than them, when we're smarter than them, when we know better, when we're, when we're actually more valuable, maybe when, when we're the wiser one, when we're more beautiful, stronger, more accomplished. See, contempt is born from our pride, and it makes us feel better in some broken way to put someone else down. Contempt is so prevalent in our culture that I think it's important for us to identify it and to call it out in its many shapes and its many forms. A theologian named Daniel Aiken in his commentary, Psalm 123, points out three places of pride uh, that can birth contempt. And as I've thought about it and talked with other people about it, I've come up with two others. And so here are five places where I think that we might be tempted in our pride to treat others with contempt. Number one, a place of ignorant pride a place of ignorant pride. We can treat others with contempt from a place of just ignorant pride. When I, what I mean is that uh, we can look down on others and treat others as lesser out of a place of prideful superiority, but not in a conscious, deliberate way of malice towards somebody. And we might not be trying to hurt somebody, at, at least not as deeply as we actually are. But maybe we're just trying to put them down a few pegs, to humble them a little bit, uh, to put them in their place a little bit, because based on our judgment of the situation, they need it, or maybe they deserve to be put down a little bit. See, this can start out as some playful teasing, and then what happens is it escalates into a constant jab, a constant putting down of someone as you make the prideful judgment about someone's behavior uh, or, or their identity. And, and what began as a playful jab becomes clear over time to somebody that you just don't respect them. That, that our view of someone has become narrowly defined by, by our judgment of them in any specific area. But the problem is that ignorance is not synonymous with innocence. So saying, I, I was only joking, or, or I didn't mean anything by it, or, oh, no offense, right? Those can be said to, to try to mask the damage of contempt, but it's an indication that our contempt of someone is coming from a place of just prideful ignorance. Like, we don't know. We don't know. I think another place that contempt can be born is in a place of intellectual superiority. And so we can treat people with contempt uh, just in a place where we think that we know better than them. You may have experienced this specifically as a Christian uh, with those who are not Christians, who may think that your faith in, in, in God and your belief in the Bible are, are antiquated or maybe primitive, especially in academic settings where religion is referred to often as the opiate of the masses. Right? as an archaic coping mechanism for the real challenges of life. We might be viewed as childish or even crazy in our belief of God and therefore experience contempt from a place of pity. When we're coming from this place of a kind of intellectually superior, uh, we can't really fathom being wrong or that the other person who, whom we wholeheartedly disagree with could actually be right. Another place where contempt can come from is a place of being comfortable in our sin. Comfortable in our sin. As you navigate the road home to eternal shalom with God, and, and since God calling you to repent from sin and to pursue holiness and righteousness, there might be those who do not have the same conviction as you. 
There are plenty of people who have made their bed and their home and lifestyles of brokenness and sin, and they are comfortable where they are. And they might often try to proselytize others to join them using peer pressure. And when we don't do that, when we don't join them, they can treat us with contempt. They might say things like, oh, you're too holy to do that with us? A goody two-shoe? Okay, go live your holy life. And people who are comfortable in their sin, they're going to reject correction and they're going to respond with contempt, no matter what kind of loving place you're coming from. Even when it's so clear, whether you're a Christian or not, that their lifestyle or their behavior is destructive to them and those around them. They just won't have it. They're comfortable in their sin, and they'll look down on you and disrespect you because they might feel like you're looking down on them and disrespecting them. Another place where we can birth some contempt as being a place of, of just spiritual hostility. In my time of being a Christian in the Pioneer Valley, I've run into those who are just spiritually hostile. What I mean by that is there, there are people who are just angry at God, usually because of some significant hurt or trauma in their past. And what happens is their anger boils over and it's unleashed on anyone who represents God. And I've experienced contempt from those who are in this place. Um, in many ways, they're kind of beyond reason when you talk with them. And it's difficult to even get a word in as their hearts are just incredibly hard and their ears are, are stopped up. In some cases, this can be a result of spiritual attack or, or spiritual oppression. Something that's deeper than just non-belief in God is making them angry. But if you're in a place of spiritual hostility, you're naturally going to treat those who are spiritual with contempt. And number five, lastly, coming from a place of spiritual superiority. Spiritual superiority. This last one might hit home. It did for me. Uh, We can treat others with contempt from a place of spiritual superiority. And this is a messy one. It implies that the person with contempt is Christian, that they know and they love God. But in our pride, we can treat others in and outside of the faith with contempt as we look down on them from a place of spiritual superiority. This might come from a place of seeing sin in someone else's life and just not understanding it ourselves. It might be uh, in our interaction with those who who are comfortable in sin, right? Because remember, contempt can trigger contempt. It might be that we see someone struggling with alcohol addiction or pornography or shopping or overwork, and we just don't understand why they are struggling the way they are. Like, we, we, we might just not have the, the ability to sympathize with them in that struggle, which can tempt us to go to a place of spiritual superiority. How could they do that? Like, why don't they just knock it off? It's not that hard. Can't they see that this is a problem and all they need to do is just not do it? They're just so spiritually immature. I wish they would grow up. See, this is probably the messiest place and probably the most hurtful because it's a twisting of something that is good and godly. It's possible that you've been able to discern something that is truly wrong, whether that's seeing brokenness in a person, brokenness in a system or a structure, but instead of approaching them with humility and compassion, we can engage with hardness and impatience with them. It's like seeing a wayward child and instead of lovingly teaching them and shepherding them, like we beat them and we rebuke them and then we expect them to change and to grow up by just making them feel bad. Mercy House, this is never the way that we are to treat someone who is in sin or who is struggling or, or, or who suffer in ways that we just can't personally comprehend or understand. Treating people who are struggling and hurt with contempt from a place of spiritual superiority is absolutely catastrophic to this body of believers that is the church. 
Now, I'm not saying that if you see brokenness in a brother or sister, uh, to just let it slide or just like to forget about it or just like to avoid conflict and hard conversations. Just don't treat them with contempt. Even if they persist and they continue on in their brokenness because uh, you, you will be tempted to treat them with contempt. But out of love for your brother or sister, approach them with humility, with gentleness, bring truth with grace, and walk with them through that correction with patience upon patience upon patience, knowing that this is how God pastors and shepherds you on a daily basis, with patience upon patience upon patience. As we read the psalm, it is less uh, of a warning uh, or, or, uh, or exhortation to not treat others with contempt. Uh, the focus is on Israel's experience with contempt, an experience so intense that they collectively are crying out to God for mercy. And I'm willing, you, willing to bet you can recount a time that you've experienced the pain of being treated with contempt. When you had an interaction with someone that made you feel discouraged, and just worthless. When something someone said or did made you feel stupid and exposed or, or even ashamed, and, and perhaps when you have experienced enough contempt, you believe the painful and disrespectful things that are being said about you. See, if someone calls you stupid or someone calls you ugly right to your face, you might be able to just laugh them off, right? When someone tells you that you're stupid or you're ugly every single day for a week, that might start getting under your skin. You don't as easily laugh that off. But when, when it's someone that you know, maybe even someone that you respect telling you over and over for years that you were either ugly or that you were stupid or that you were useless or that you were worthless or that you're just such a mess that there's absolutely no hope for you, that you're good for nothing, that you won't amount to anything, that you're a horrible person, that no one likes you, like, over time, when we hear enough contempt, it's no longer contempt to us. It depressingly becomes our reality. And other people's contempt becomes people just kind of speaking truth to us. And we believe it ourselves. And you know what? The, uh, when, when true defeat happens in the face of contempt is when we ourselves treat ourselves with that contempt. When we believe others' contempt of us and speak the same crushing words to ourselves. How can I be that stupid? What, what is wrong with me? How can I, why can't I do anything right? Why am I even still alive right now? I'll never amount to anything. I am so ugly. No one could ever love me. I'm a failure. I'm useless. God, have mercy. I mean, that's, that's where Israel's at in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. God, have mercy, they say. This hurt is not just surface level. The psalmist cries out, our soul has had enough. When, when we are defeated by contempt and believe those vicious lies as truth, we treat ourselves with contempt. Uh, that's not just a flesh wound, Mercy House. Like, that is a deep, deep wound. They always say like six and stones can break our bones, but words... Words can destroy you, Mercy House. Un unfortunately, as we look at this, experiencing contempt from others is something that, that we should come to expect, <laughs> especially if we are faithfully following Christ. This is not just an Israel problem. This is not a problem with just some of us in the room. This is not an issue with just not having enough self-esteem or not having enough confidence or just not being resilient enough. 
And just look at what Jesus says to his disciples during one of the final, final moments of teaching with them. He's preparing them for what's about to come. He's being honest. He's being transparent about what it will mean for them to be faithful in following him. And in John 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus is saying, if you were like everybody else in the world, the world wouldn't have a problem with you. The problem is is that you are not (laughs) of this world. Therefore, everyone is going to hate you. If they hated me, if they persecuted me, if they treated me with contempt, you're going to get it too. And this is not like a, a license to be a jerk as a Christian. Well, no one's going to like me, so I, you know, I don't have to be nice to anybody. Uh, Jesus is the most approachable, the most likable, the most gentle, the most loving person that has ever existed. So this isn't a knock on Jesus' character. It's not like Jesus couldn't get along with people. It's showing that the world and its broken and its sinful state is by nature in opposition to the perfect holiness of God, which you as a Christian embody and represent to the world. As ambassadors for Christ, you will receive like treatment, scorn, and contempt. And so this is bound to happen. Uh, Being looked down upon, being disrespected, being pitied, bullied, made to feel worthless. And if this is all a part of the deal, as we sign on to Team Jesus, then do we just need thicker skin, Mercy House? Is that the remedy to this? Do we just need to gain the ability to kind of compartmentalize our emotions kind of stuff things down and just white-knuckle it until the day of glorification? No, that is not the healthy response. Thankfully, the psalmist walks us through how to respond to contempt in a healthy way. So now we're going to go back to the top of the psalm, starting in verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. When we experience contempt, the first thing we ought to do is look to God. And looking to God provides two things for us. It actually gives us immunity to contempt and the ability to love our neighbors. Immunity to contempt and the ability to love our neighbors. The healthiest thing we can do is not to look to our friends or our spouse to help in our defense of contempt. It's not to run and look in the mirror and examine ourselves and say, am I actually ugly? Am I actually stupid? And try to console ourselves. And in the case, like, you might be tempted like me, the godly response is not to trade contempt for contempt. Oh, you think I'm an idiot? Look at your face. You're an idiot. So our first response to contempt should be not to defend ourselves or to speak up for ourselves, which I know is a controversial statement in the day and age that we live. But but this is why. We look to God who is enthroned in heaven because in Him alone is our identity. We look to God who knit us together in our mother's womb, who knows every intricate detail of our flesh and spirit, who made us according to his plan with purpose, who loves us. That's who we look to to tell us who we are. Mercy House, listen to me. Whoever treats you with contempt, no matter how much power or how much influence they may have over you, they do not sit enthroned in heaven. You hear me? They did not make you. They do not love you the way that God loves you. They do not know you the way that God knows you. And so we lift up our eyes to God who sits enthroned in heaven because God alone gives you your value and your identity. Not some kid in school who thinks you have lame shoes. 
We look to God, who, who on his throne has all power in heaven and on earth, to be the one who stands in our defense. We look to God in these ways to receive from him the truth about who we are and to be the one who stands in our defense and we're able to become immune to contempt. We also are able to respond to people who treat us with contempt the way that we should, with love and with compassion. See, those who treat others with contempt have likely been treated with contempt themselves, probably more than they actually dish out. What contempt reveals and its anger and the hurt is really a twisted worldview. The way that someone who defaults to putting people down, it's really, really sad because they genuinely have bought into the structure of their contempt. So for someone who comes from a place of superiority where they treat others with contempt because they're ugly, they might believe that your true worth and value is in beauty. And someone who treats you with contempt for being stupid might believe that the only way that you value a person is through their intelligence. If someone tells you that you can't be cool because your shoes are ugly, and I'm not trying to make light of this, like that person might actually believe that their value as a child is derived in what shoes they're wearing on their feet. See, these are such broken, bleak prisons that people are living in, and it should draw us to compassion. When we can look to God In the contempt that we experience, we have the resiliency to see the brokenness of our accuser, and we can love our enemies. We can speak truth with grace and patience, and we can bring hope and healing. We can bring the gospel which frees them from their broken worldview and let them experience the incredible value of of how to experience their own value and their own worth in what we have in Christ. This This is why in, in the hurt and the pain of experiencing the contempt of others, we can look to God. Let's look at verse 2, and then we're going to finish up for the day. Verse 2 says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so, the, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist uses an image to further illustrate what their hearts and minds are doing as they lift their eyes up to God. The image that's being used can be hard to grasp because we don't have the same context for masters and mistresses today, at least not using these words. The psalmist is not referring to an oppressive or an abusive or an unjust or cruel relationship between the master over the servant. Namely, because uh, God, who is being illustrated as the master here, is not oppressive or abusive or unjust or cruel uh, in his relationship with us. He, he is patient. He is loving. He is gentle. He is kind. He, he's not a self-seeking tyrant, but he is a selfless father. And so with this in mind, the illustration is meant to convey the fact that we are in a master-servant relationship with God. And this helps us further understand how Israel is looking at God. Not only as a God who is enthroned in heaven, all-powerful, with all authority, he's, he's also overseeing and responsible for Israel's well-being. As a master who cares for those under his authority, uh, intimately, lavishly, in a sense, I don't just take care of my children and desire what's best for them because it's just my job, but because I love them, I treasure them, I cherish them. And so Israel looks to the hand of their master as a servant, which communicates a few things. One is that we look to God in our pain instead of looking away or running away. 
That's what a servant or a maidservant is doing when they look attentively at the hand of their master. Their desire is to serve their master. And so they wait and they watch for any, any need to be communicated. If you've ever been to a restaurant or like a nicer, any, really any restaurant, the way that you get your, your waitress or your waiter's attention is you, you, you just kind of wave them down a little bit, right? And so that's the illustration, right? Like they're waiting for you and they're like, oh yeah, you need something? And you're like, yeah, I need a knife. Like can you get a knife, right? So even in their painful experience of contempt and scorn, Israel continues to serve God. They continue to faithfully pursue God, looking to Him for direction and being sensitive to where God might be communicating something that that He wants them to do. And so I I don't think that this application, uh, the application for this point is, even when you're in pain, just serve through it. I don't think that's what the psalmist is getting at, but I do think what he's getting at is that Israel isn't blaming God for the contempt that they're experiencing. They're not saying, God, we're mad at you, and until you, 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 you fix this and, and give us mercy, uh, we're going to do a walk out of the temple each day. Not at all. They're not holding God hostage. Uh, they're not basing their worship of him on their experience in the world. They are rightly understanding that the contempt and scorn that they are experiencing is a product of sin and brokenness. And they're able to rightly look at God, able to appreciate Him for who He is, and to make a conscious effort to continue being faithful to Him, to worship Him, even in their pain and their hurt. Mercy House, we're called to do this too. And it's not to diminish our hurt and our pain, Uh, Israel is still lamenting and pleading that God would have mercy and bring healing to their deep, deep soul wounds. But instead of running away and isolating ourselves or maybe protesting God, uh, instead of treating God with contempt, they're actually leaning in to their relationship with God. They continue to look to the hand of their master. See, that requires a tremendous amount of trust which is the second thing we see that Israel is showcasing by looking at God. There's an understanding here that God can, at any moment, take away their pain, that at any second, God can alleviate the contempt and scorn that they have, and He can turn it into joy. He can take their mourning, and He can turn it into joy. And so they're looking to the person who can bring the relief. They're not running off and chasing after idols. They're not getting drunk with wine. They're not throwing themselves into their work or escaping into leisure. They continue to look to God, the source of mercy and relief, with just laser focus. Mercy House, in our pain, in our hurt, where do we run? Where do we lift our eyes when we just can't take it anymore. There is no other source of mercy, no other source of comfort, no being who is powerful enough to bring healing and relief than God who sits enthroned in heaven. So let's look there. I don't know who you are or or, or what you look to or run to or what you escape to when you're just crushed with the wounds of your soul, but I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you So let that be God. Lift your eyes to Him who sits enthroned in heaven. The contempt of people stinks. (laughs) It hurts deeply. It, it, It can weary your soul. But the worst contempt we can experience is not accusations about us being ugly or fat. It's not accusations about us being stupid or uncool or even pathetic or useless. The most dangerous and damaging contempt that we as humans can experience is the contempt of Satan 
the accuser. When he looks down at you and says, look at you, you nasty, filthy, vile sinner. You are disgusting. Like, who would ever even want you? You are scum. No one could ever love you. You think you can be with God? You are dead in your sin. You are eternally separated from God, you idiot. You did this to yourself, too. You have anything to say for yourself? No, because you know that I'm right. Like, that is the accuser speaking contempt on us. Mercy us. You know what the worst thing about Satan's contempt of us is? That without the work of Jesus, it is largely true that we are dead in our sin. We are vile. That's what the song was just singing. We are separated from God. We did do this to ourselves. But you know what? God loves you. He, he wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him forever. God loves you and wants you so bad that he responded in your defense. He heard the contempt that Satan has for you, and he came into the world, and he bore that contempt upon himself. He took your sin, he took your shame, he took your guilt, and it killed him. But in that process, he destroyed the power of contempt, the power of the accuser. Never mind the empty words of the accuser and his contempt. Do you know what God says about you? In Isaiah 43, he says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Your sins are forgiven. If you're not a Christian, this is what God has done for you. You are dead in your sin, and Satan's contempt of you is real. But Jesus has given his life in your defense to destroy that contempt and that condemnation and to crush the accuser and to give you life. And so this morning, you can receive that by faith, not needing to do anything or say anything, but by believing in Christ, the crusher of all contempt. Mercy House, I don't know what kind of contempt you live under. I don't know where you feel like a loser or a bum or just stupid or worthless, but I know that Satan is working so hard to make you believe that you are these things. And what he'd love for you to do is also believe them and to pour contempt on yourself using the same words that he's using. But if you are in Christ, lift your eyes to him who is enthroned in heaven and remember who you are, Mercy House. Know that your sins are forgiven, that you are not defined by your character flaws, which there might be many, that you are no longer condemned in your brokenness, that you are no longer alienated from God, you are no longer worthless or vile, you are precious to God, and you are beautiful in his sight. How can we who have had our contempt crushed by Christ go on to treat others with contempt? If, if you're convicted about that this morning, I want to encourage you to repent alongside me, to not be a mouthpiece for Satan any longer, to be used as a tool of the accuser, but to go and bring the contempt-crushing gospel to those who are still under the contempt of Satan. I, I want to leave you with this. 
When we as Christians lift our eyes to God who sits enthroned in heaven, when, when we continue to look to the hand of our master as we await his merciful response to the places where we are pleading for mercy, as we find our shalom, our peace in the contempt-crushing gospel, powerful things happen. And, and I know this because this is the spirit in which the early church was built. They weren't timid. They weren't listening to the contempt of Satan or the contempt of others. They were tenacious for Jesus. Oh, that we would be a body of believers who cling to God and the gospel so tightly that, that the contempt of this world would just be trivial. Look at the early church in Acts chapter 5. This is what we see. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Like, talk about contempt, right? But then verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for the name. Like, how does Satan stand against that? How does he stop that? He can't. <laughs> Satan's trying to pour contempt on the apostles, and they laugh, and they sing about it because Satan has nothing on them any longer. And they know, based on the hatred of the world, that they're experiencing that, hey, they're on Team Jesus now. So may God, who sits enthroned in heaven and his gospel transform this church in such a way that the contempt of this world brings about joyous praise of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you sit enthroned in heaven. You are the ultimate reality. In your word is truth. God, we confess that we hear the lies and the accusations of Satan every single day, and we struggle under it, God. Father, as much as we would want to say that it doesn't hurt us or that it just glances off, the reality is many of us have deep soul wounds inflicted from words, from those outside the church, from those inside the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy, that your mercy would come. Father, we continue to look to you in our hurt and our pain. We thank you that there is hope in you, that you do hear our cries for mercy. And so we trust you, and we continue to look to you until you bring mercy. We thank you that even as we sit here now, that the greatest mercy has already been given, that the contempt of the accuser has been crushed. Thank you that we have freedom in you to experience our true identity in you, not in our actions, not in our sin, not in our shortcomings, not what the world has to say about us, but in you. God, would we just believe who we are in you? Lord, I pray that you would grow our church in this way. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.